verse 10 says, uh, a wife of noble character, who can find? She's worth far more than rubies. Proverbs 31 has been loved in the church for ages and for good reason. It's just a beautiful passage of Scripture of what a beautiful godly woman is like. It's been studied by many Christian women. It's inspired many women to live godly lives. However, Proverbs 31 is not written for women. Proverbs 31, verse 1, the very first verse in that chapter, it says that chapter 31 is an oracle that King Lemuel's mother taught him. So Proverbs 31 especially that beloved part, verses 10 through 31, is about women, but it's not written to women. It's written for men, and it describes the kind of godly woman a man should desire for his wife. That doesn't mean women shouldn't study it and love it and learn from it, but the, the target audience, first and foremost, is men who are looking for a godly wife. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 shares something in common here. It's a really special passage of Scripture, um, but you might think, ah, this is not really for me because this is about elders and I'm not an elder. You might say, I didn't know we were studying elders on uh, Memorial Day Sunday. We probably should have just gone to the beach. This doesn't really have anything to do with me. Doesn't touch any of my felt needs. And, uh, but I guess we'll just power through and uh, check it off the box. Well, look, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 is about elders, but it's not written to elders. It's written for the church, and it describes the kinds of godly men we should desire to serve our church. Godly leadership matters in the life of the local church. The survey of the Bible reveals very quickly that as go the leaders of God's people, so go God's people. Godly leadership matters. And what kind of people make the best church leaders? What kind of people does God want leading his flock? Well, this is a lesson that Timothy is learning uh, in his time serving at the church in Ephesus. As we've discussed in our study of 1 Timothy so far, the church in Ephesus where Timothy is leading that church is what scholars call a hot mess. It is messed up top to bottom. There is very little health or vibrancy in this church. It always makes me giggle a little bit when people will speak romantically of the church and they'll say, I just wish we could get back to the first century church and what it was like then. First century church was a mess. It was jacked up and needed fixing. We're probably a lot more first century these days than you'd like to recognize. Not exactly high praise. But, uh, first, uh, but Ephesus is a church that's just in turmoil. You, you remember chapter 1, Paul highlights the key problem. You've got false teachers. These are people who have history in the church. They have names that are known, histories that are known, and they have positions of influence and leadership, and they are steering the church away from the gospel of Jesus Christ and as a result, it creates a church that fights each other, that doesn't care about the lost, a church where people's faith is shipwrecked. What kind of church is that? A church that shipwrecks people's faith. So Paul calls them out in chapter 1. And then, having called out the false teachers, he highlights the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 2, you remember Paul calls everyone in the church to pray for those who are not believers 
and to share the gospel with those who are not believers. And then he turns his attention to the godly behavior of men and women in the church. That's what we studied together last week. Now in chapter 3, he turns his attention to leadership in the local church. Uh, The passage we study this morning addresses elders. The passage we study next week addresses deacons in the church. These are the two New Testament offices of church service. And in this passage today, Paul is helping us understand the type of character of the people who lead God's church. Look, if the church of Jesus Christ is going to flourish on God's mission, then she has to have leaders who reflect the character of Jesus. Godly leaders are essential in the life of the local church. So my purpose today is to clarify the roles and responsibilities of elders and to call the church to hold her elders to this beautiful biblical standard. This is about elders. It is for all of us. We're going to approach this passage in a Q&A format. I'm going to ask four questions of the passage, and the answers to those questions should unite us around the roles and requirements of elders in the church, elders at South Shore Baptist. I want you to follow along with me as I read 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So those are Paul's qualifications for elders in the local church. I want us to ask a few questions of the passage that can help us arrive at a place of agreement, hopefully, as to what an elder is and does in the church. First question we'll ask is this, who are elders? Uh, If you come from a traditional Baptist church background, like I have, Uh, You didn't have elders in your church, not identifiable elders anyways. Uh, Churches that I grew up in uh, had deacons who served in the role of elders. They were called deacons, but their role and the authority that they were given was elder-like in the way it was exercised. And then if you were to ask someone in that church, who's the elder or the elders here, they would point to the staff. Well, the senior pastor, other pastors, those are our elders, and then the deacons have this governing authority. That's a very traditional Baptist misunderstanding in my uh, approach of of what it looks like to have elders in the church. But what Paul talks about here uh, are elders who have a specific role to guide and care for the church. So one characteristic we find throughout the New Testament when elders are spoken of for the local church is that they're always spoken of in plural. 
The New Testament church, uh, every church in the New Testament has a plurality of elders. Not just one man leading the church, but multiple men who are leading the church together, uh, arm in arm. Uh, This is a far more important factor than you might realize. The issue of having multiple elders is vital to church health. And uh, there could be an argument to be made that a church that does not have multiple elders should not be meeting and gathering together. This has been illustrated, the importance of it has been illustrated to me in recent years through a couple of local pastor friends. One, a pastor of an established church, the other, uh, a church planter, and both of them feeling the strain of not having another elder to lead the church with. And so the brother at the established church had us, his friends, praying with him, God, give this man another elder, someone to share the load, someone someone to pray with, someone to give care to the congregation with. And uh, so far that prayer has not yet been answered. The brother who is the church planter, he moved to the area, identified where he was going to plant the church. Uh, He's following the leadership of the Holy Spirit the whole way. But this one prayer remained, God, I need an elder. I need another man with me to do this work. I know you've called me to it. I'm not going to start this work until I have that man. And we prayed with him, and the Lord honored that prayer. And he found another wonderful Christian man to come alongside him. And that church is now a couple of years old and uh, doing well. Leadership matters. A plurality of elders matters in the life of the local church. Another thing we've got to talk about here, this is the, the landmine issue in this passage and from chapter 2, is our understanding of Scripture that the office of elder is reserved only for qualified men. This is a dividing point in many churches. Uh, some churches will say, uh, like we do, like South Shore Baptist does, that this office, the office of elder, is reserved only for men. And we carry the label complementarian. We would say men and women are created in equal value, equal dignity, equal voice before the Lord in the image of God. But God has given to men and women different roles to be lived out in the life of the church and within the home as well. Uh, there are others who would look at this passage and they, or other similar passages and say, uh, no, every office, every role, every position in the church is equally accessible to men and women alike. The label given to them is egalitarian. Now, uh, we are decidedly, biblically, convictionally uh, complementarian as a church. We believe this office is reserved for qualified men. And there's three different ways we can arrive at this conclusion. There's a lot of factors involved, but three simple ways that we approach this from Scripture. One is that the function of an elder uh, is restricted in the Bible to qualified men. So the passage we studied last week, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Uh, we find the roles of teaching and authority available only to qualified men in that passage. And I don't intend to get back in the weeds on that. I would encourage you, if you were not here last week and you want to understand more about our approach to that, I'd encourage you to go to our website and listen to that sermon. It's a quick 47 minutes. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) but there we deal a little more in depth with this issue. Also, if you go to our website where you would download that sermon to listen to it there's a drop down menu next to it and our sermon study guide is there also give you another opportunity for a little more in-depth study 
on that passage. But in 1 Timothy 2.12, these functions, teaching and authority, and especially as they're paired together, this authoritative teaching that we find is restricted to qualified men in the life of the church. Uh, A second reason we draw this conclusion is because some of the qualifications for an elder are also restricted to men. Uh, For example, here in chapter 3, also in Titus chapter 1, we're told that the elder must be the husband of one wife. There's debate about the rigidity of Paul's description. Does Paul really mean only a husband of one wife, or does he just mean that whoever serves in that role, male or female, must be a faithful spouse uh, to their spouse? That, that's the debating point. Uh, but still, we see here a consistency in the New Testament teaching uh, that the office is restricted uh, to qualified men. One last way we draw this conclusion is that there's no reference anywhere in the New Testament to a female elder leading a church. Now, the objection to this would be, uh, well, that, that's an argument from silence. It, it doesn't carry a lot of weight. It, you're correct, it's an argument from silence, but it's a deafening silence, especially when taken together with the previous two points. We just simply have no biblical precedent for female elders in the local church. Now, that being said, let's remember that this is a secondary theological matter. Gender roles is not a primary theological matter on the same level as a Trinitarian God or Christ's substitutionary atonement. It's not on the same level as those things. Uh, While it's a defining characteristic for our church, It's not an issue that we go to war over uh, with other churches. Let's also remember that we are not saying that men are inherently better leaders or that men are biologically better preachers, that women are somehow flawed, and that's why God has chosen men uh, to serve in this role. What's more, we have to continuously hold our sisters in the faith in high regard as powerful and essential allies in God's mission. This is not man's work that women support. This is the work of brothers and sisters together for the sake of the glory of God in the world around us. Uh, There is a ton of information. If you want to study more on this, I would encourage you to. If if our conclusion, our biblical conviction... uh, causes concern for you, then here's an area for you to do more study. What does the Bible say? That's really what drives our conclusion here. You might say, Cody, you, you believe men should hold that office because you're a man, and so therefore you have a vested interest in advancing the patriarchy. And uh, that's just not true. <laughs> I am a man, technically, but I have no interest in propping up some failing system. Uh, that's, uh, that's not what I'm interested in. And so what does the Bible give us? That's the, that's the big question. And there are biblically faithful, biblically-minded churches that land at a different place than we do on this. We acknowledge that, and we trust the Lord to guide us uh, as we search his word and follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit in this. So we're going to say the office of elder Uh, requires more than one elder in the church. It's for qualified men. And then Paul gives us one more important detail in verse 1 about this role. He says it's a task that one must desire. 
Paul's not saying that a, a man should desire this uh, as a way of grabbing power or inflating his own ego. It's not something that we fight for. Uh, but rather he's saying that the man who considers this has to understand the seriousness of the requirements and the weight of the office. It's not enough for the man's church to recognize these qualities in him. The man himself must desire to serve the church. Um, When we lived in Kansas, had a friend named Marla who lived in a small, small, small neighboring town called Belle Plaine. And on one Sunday, Marla came to church looking a little frowny. I said, hey, Marla, how you doing? She said, not great. Why is that? Well, this past week, I missed a city council meeting, and they made me mayor of the town. (laughs) That is not a joke. (laughs) Marla missed a meeting. Well, we need a mayor. Who'll do it? Marla's not here. She'll do it. So Marla Morley was the, the mayor of Belle Plaine, Kansas for a period of time because she missed a meeting. Uh, like, that's not how we appoint elders. <laughs> not by absentee ballot, not by coercion. Uh, we want our church to be led by godly men who desire to serve God's people, who love God's people, and who are willing to Uh, lay down their rights and privileges to do so. Here's a second question we'd ask of this text. What do elders do? What is it that elders do? Well, what's interesting in this passage in particular is Paul doesn't say a lot about the function of an elder. He he talks about teaching, so we know there's something there with that. And, And we might look to other places in 1 Timothy and we can find other places where elders might lead, other things elders might do. But on the whole, the passage we're studying today is not concerned with the elders' to-do list. It's concerned with his character. That's where we'll spend most of our time. Well, that being said, the way Paul just talks about the office gives us some insight into the role the elders play in the church. Paul uses three different titles for this one office and he uses these titles interchangeably so he'll use the term overseer here in chapter 3 verse 1 and that word overseer carries with it a meaning of supervision he also uses the term elder as we use it we'll find that in first timothy chapter 5 the term elder carries with it a, a sense of authority not dictatorship but certainly authority. Paul also uses the term pastor. He doesn't use it so often, but he does use it. We find it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. That term means to shepherd or to feed with the idea of nurturing and sustaining the flock of God. We read several shepherd passages from Scripture this morning in our worship to show us that Christ is our shepherd. He is our good shepherd Our elders, our pastors, they are under-shepherds of the chief shepherd. So these titles, overseer, elder, pastor, they give us a sense of the work the elder is to do in the church. They are to lead the church in God's mission according to God's word as overseers. And elders are also put in place to care for or to shepherd the people of God as pastors. 
guide in the mission according to the word and care for the flock. Those are our two key words, guide and care. These are the primary tasks of the church's elders. Elders are not a government unto themselves. They are not authorities unto themselves. They are men under authority. They are men guided by the word of God. They are men who are to hold the church to the word of God for the church's nourishment and health and vibrancy that we would succeed in the mission God has given us to do, that we'd make disciples of all nations. Elders guide and elders provide care. So now, with that in mind, we can turn our attention to the text more directly for our next question. Third question is this. What are the requirements for an elder? So, again, Paul spends so much of his time addressing the character of the man. What is he like as a person? Not not what are his skills... Can he type 50 words a minute? Does he know Robert's rules of order? Does he have demonstrated leadership, acumen? That's not what we're looking at. We're looking at the heart of a man. And Paul gets very specific as to the character required for these men who lead us. There are a lot of them listed in verses 2 through 7. What I've done to try and help us is broken them up into four different categories. I think that's helpful. Rather than just a bullet point list of da-da-da-da-da-da-da, uh, here's four different categories I think might help us as we think about uh, the character of elders in the church. So the first category would be this, the man with others. Who is the man in relationship with other people? In verses 2 through 3, a long list of characteristics, and every one of these characteristics speaks to who the man is in relationship to other people. Okay, let's walk through them together. Verse 2, the overseer must be above reproach. Another way of saying this would be he must be blameless. Not sinless, we're not going to find that in elder candidates, um, but blameless for sure. Uh, We want elders who do not carry accusations or suspicions of wrongdoing. Uh, This is a man who doesn't have scandal associated with his life or his ministry. And it's important to note that this blamelessness is not restricted to those who know him just inside his church. Uh, He is above reproach with those outside the church. We want an elder with whom the community finds no fault, a man whose character is consistent. He's above reproach in the church and outside the church. Uh, He's also the husband of one wife. Now, this line is difficult to make sense of. What does Paul mean when he says he's the husband of one wife? Does he mean the elder must not be a polygamist? Does he mean the elder must have never been divorced? Does he mean the office is not for single men? Well, even Bible translators themselves can't decide. This line is written different ways between different translations. But the bottom line is this. The elder's marital history matters. Right? Divorce in a candidate's past has to be treated with the utmost seriousness. I'm not comfortable saying divorce automatically disqualifies a man from serving as an elder in the church There are complicating factors that we must evaluate and look at, and we carry the seriousness of Scripture and the seriousness of covenant marriage uh, to the table for evaluation. What's more, it's important to note that this list of characteristics tells us 
It's not enough that the man is merely the husband of one wife. It matters what kind of husband he is. Rotten husband of one wife, not to lead the church. Uh, My wife has been given a really special ministry of getting to connect with and care for other, uh, other wives of pastors. And uh, a lot of times that happens in very, just very quiet conversations. And other times she's been given a platform to speak to women, uh, wives of pastors. Uh, and in different breakout sessions at retreats, she, she was able to speak at one uh, just this past winter. I have many peers who are not good husbands. It ought to be of utmost importance to you that my wife has a good husband. Not just taken for granted that because I've got two jokes in 30 minutes that she's happy to be married to me. You have to make sure that she has a good husband. And if not, you need another lead pastor. What's most important is my marriage to my wife and the way I cherish her and help her in her holiness. I I had a pastor friend tell me early in my ministry, he said, Cody, you you could see every person in this county come to faith in Christ. You could baptize more people than this church has ever baptized. You could have unprecedented ministry success. And if it costs you your marriage, you've lost everything. You must be the husband of one wife. A poor husband cannot be a good pastor. A poor husband will not be a pastor for long. Other characteristics here in verse 2. He must be temperate. This covers a wide range of attributes. He is sober in his thinking. He's balanced in his responses and reactions. The elder is to be self-controlled. He keeps his passions, his temper, and his appetites under control. He's to be respectable. Now, I I think respect comes in different degrees. There's a deep degree of respect that's earned over time. But there's also a surface level of respect that's given easily to those who are worthy of it. The bottom line is it requires knowing the man. If he's to be an elder, if he is respectable, it means you, you know him. And he's to be hospitable. In Paul's world, hospitality is a matter of honor. If you don't take care of the visitor, you brought shame on yourself. Likewise, the elder who lives in seclusion from others fails at the most basic level of Christianity. Also in verse 2, Paul tells us he has to be an able teacher. This quality is required of elders. What does it mean to be an able teacher? Well, certainly we would say it means he is biblically faithful in what he teaches. He keeps himself lined with the word of God whenever he teaches. Second, it tells us this, elders are men who are discipling others. They are men who are investing the word of God into other people. Not just men with authority and office and a boardroom and decisions to make. They are men who are giving their lives to see others individually growing in their knowledge and trust in Jesus Christ. In verse 3, Paul moves to some negative statements. He's given us six positive statements in verse 2, but now we get to four negative statements. The elders not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, not given to drunkenness. We need a man who lives sober, a man who is sober-minded, a man whose appetites are under godly discipline. 
He's not violent, but gentle. Violence comes in many different ways. I know a guy who was a youth pastor, and his pastor punched him in a fit of rage one day. Punched him. That man is disqualified from leading his church because he is violent. Not gentle. So a violent man is not God's man to lead the church. Along with that, an elder is not quarrelsome. Uh, He's not stirring up fights and dissension. Look, that doesn't mean that the, the elder is forbidden from disagreeing with you. Disagreement is not the same as being quarrelsome, but he must practice good conflict resolution and strive for peace and unity in the faith family. He's not a lover of money. He isn't greedy. He tithes. He is generous with what the Lord has given him. He's a glad giver. He's not owned by his stuff. Rather, he's a steward of his stuff. That's the man with others. Verses 2 and 3, a lot of different characteristics, all speak to the character of a man in relationship to other people. There's another category here in verses 4 and 5. I'd call it the man with his family. We've already spoken a little bit about this, the requirement that he's a husband of one wife. But verse 4 tells us this, that the elder must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? This is a good argument. It matters what the elder's home life is like. Verse 4 talks about having his children under control with proper respect. If the elder is a father, he has to be a good father. It doesn't mean his children will always be perfect with no rebellion. Nor do I believe this passage means that a man with a wayward child is disqualified automatically from leading the church. Hey, if that were the case, we'd have a lot few Billy Graham sermons on file. But rather, the man must respond in a godly manner to crisis at home the same way he would in the church. He has to manage his own family well. Third category from verse 6 is the man with maturity. Verse 6 tells us this. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. So not a new believer, not a new convert. It's, this is a maturity matter. Paul says if, if, a, if an immature believer is put in a position of leadership too early, of this, this position of leadership too early, then they're going to be prone to the same sin, the same judgment as a devil to become conceited. We don't want to set up a young believer for failure by putting a man in this position too early. We need elders with discernment. We need elders with wisdom. We need elders with life experience. Uh, A few years ago, I was at a breakfast meeting with some other pastor friends. And one of them was talking about a young man in his church who was active and gifted in the ministry. Just a real shining, bright shining spot, a highlight for this pastor. He loved this young man and was really excited about what he was doing and who he was becoming And my pastor friend said this. He said, he'll be a good pastor one day, but he hasn't, fill in the blank real quick. He hasn't what? He hasn't gone to seminary. Um, He hasn't refined his preaching skills. He hasn't learned all the leadership principles he should. Um, What would you fill in the blank? He hasn't what? Well, here's, here's what my friend said. He'll be a 
good pastor one day, but he hasn't suffered enough yet. We're served well by elders with scars who have walked through the valley of the shadow of death and been led through by their gracious Savior. Our elders are to be men with maturity. Last category of this man's character is what I'd call the man on God's mission. He, verse 7, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. A good reputation with outsiders. So who are the outsiders the elders are supposed to have a good reputation with? Well, they're non-believers. And isn't that a weird expectation of elders? Right? You want an elder who has great relationships with his church family and with his own family, but why a good reputation with non-believers? Well, remember that Paul's ultimate motivation is the evangelistic expansion of the church. And the God-chosen elder that leads God's people will be one who loves non-Christians. He's rooted in the gospel, and he's a friend to people from every walk of life. You may want elders who honor traditions of the past, or you may want elders who are forward-thinking and cutting-edge in their leadership, or you may want elders who will champion your theological hobby horse, but the problem is the Bible prescribes none of that. What is explicit in the New Testament is the elder must be a man who loves souls, who aches for the lost, who will not stop until the disciples of this church are living in obedience to the Great Commission. He's got to be a man on God's mission. His reputation with outsiders can serve as evidence of that. One last question to ask of this passage. How does the church care for her caregivers? Sometimes we think about elders only in terms of what they do for us. What do we do for them? So what I've done is I've just looked through the passages we've already studied to find a few words of encouragement for us as a church as we care for our caregivers. There's just a few things. One, we should encourage them. That's how Paul opens his letter to Timothy is with words of encouragement in chapter 1, verse 2. Grace, mercy, and peace from, the God, or from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. We should require biblical faithfulness from them. Here's what I mean is that you're going to say to the elders of our church, hold us to God's word, brother. And, and when you, you see deviation from that, you go to your elders or your elder and you say, brother, hold us to God's word. This, this is the boundary we want. This is how we support you best. Hold us to God's word no matter what. Require biblical faithfulness of your elders. Pray for them. Uh, they are men who work a lot, men who have families of their own. They are flawed men still growing in their own sanctification. They are not super Christian. They are not mega disciples. They are not the best of the best. They are men who are saved by grace. Pray for them. Follow their leadership. Again, not as dictators. They are not lords over the church. They are under shepherds who guide and care. 
But in multiple places in the New Testament, the church is called to follow, to obey her leaders. Chapter 2, Paul speaks of that as he's addressing women, but his instructions to women in chapter 2, verse 11, are true for all people. We should all submit ourselves to the authority of the church. That doesn't mean you don't have a voice. It doesn't mean you don't have a vote. It means that we let our leaders lead as they guide us according to the word of God. And then finally, we should appoint elders with care. That's what Paul's speaking of here. Remember, this is, Ephesus is a church in turmoil. And if that church is going to be set on the right path to glorify God, it has to have leaders who look like Jesus Christ. So we have to appoint our elders with care. So we've covered a lot of ground this morning. Uh, who are the types of leaders who should be given authority to guide and care God's church. Here's what we've said today. We've said they should be men who are Christ-like with others. They should be men who are Christ-like with their families, men who are Christ-like in their spiritual maturity, and men who are Christ-like in their mission to win the lost. These are the glad non-negotiables for church leadership. They're not points of debate, but they're areas of unity and agreement within the church. And when we look at this long list of requirements, look, if we're being honest, they are too much for any one man to possess with perfection. It will not take you long to look at any elder who serves in our church or who has ever served in our church and say, here is a place where you fail, brother. And this is why, first and foremost, our elders are to be men who have been saved by the grace of Jesus. They are inevitably men like Paul, who in chapter 1 called himself the worst of sinners, who was saved by a God of unlimited patience. Jesus did not look at pre-saved Paul and say, this guy is a high-octane leader, and I need to get him on my team. He's an organizer, a doer, a motivator. He sets goals and goes after them, no matter how many bodies he leaves in his wake. That's the kind of leader team Jesus needs. That's not how Jesus approached Paul. Paul was dead in his sin, an enemy of the church, an enemy of God. And he was saved by the incredible grace of Jesus Christ. Paul is qualified to lead God's church only in as much as he looks like Jesus. And so then that's the question to you. Does your life reflect Jesus? When people consider your character, what do they find? We'd be wrong to take these seven verses and just draw leadership principles out of them. Our understanding of this passage has to begin with the gospel. And when we hear the gospel, we find that we are sinners against a holy, holy, holy God. And we are responsible for our sin and deserving of death. But God came to us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus lived a perfect life. And since he is perfect God in the flesh, he alone is qualified to die in our place for our sin. That's what he does. Three days after Jesus died, he rose from the dead and promises that if you trust in him, you'll be forgiven of your sin and saved. You'll be set on a journey of developing Christ-like character in yourself. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 is a lot more about all of us than perhaps we realize. These attributes are not limited to a select few. I would argue that these are the kinds of people we're all supposed to be 
that you may not be the most gifted teacher, but we are to still be people who embrace Jesus and follow Jesus for the sake of the world. We are to be people who reflect his character in our thinking and in our living, in our relationships with others. And when Jesus is the love of our lives, it'll be easy for us to identify leaders who look like him, and it'll be a joy to follow leaders who point us to him. If King Lemuel's mother, the inspiration for Proverbs 31, if she were here today, she might ask us, an elder who desires the noble task, who can find? And you might answer, well, we can when we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word to us. And I ask that you would take our eyes from this page and set them on Jesus Christ the one who takes the worst of sinners and turns them into the kinds of people who love the lost, who are humble, who don't fight, who aren't given to drunkenness, who aren't greedy. This is true of every person you save. You, you take us from the realm of death. You put us on the path of life and we praise you for this. So Lord, this morning we thank you for the transformation you bring in the life of every person that trusts in you. And we thank you especially for gifting your church uh, with humble men to lead, to guide, and to care for us. Thank you for the elders who are serving us today, men who are humble, men who are accessible, men who are striving their best to care for the church, to be the right kinds of under-shepherds, men who wrestle to guide the church, to hold the church to biblical fidelity and success in the mission you've given us. Lord, we pray for our elders that you would help them in the work that you've called them to do. Let them find joy in it. Let them find unity in their work as they rally around Jesus Christ. God, I pray that the outcome of healthy leadership, biblical leadership in a biblical church would be the salvation of many souls. Let us know that we follow 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 right in as much as we see the gospel proclaimed and people believing and coming to faith in you. Lord, guide us as a church that we would love our elders well, that we would support them in their work. Guide us that we would be the kinds of people who strive to walk in your way, reflecting the character of Christ in our own lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.